just now. I hope you were. Uh, you've noticed there's some things that are a, a bit challenging in our text for today. Um, many questions arise, some things that are perplexing on the surface. Listen to what Martin Luther said about this text, all right? He says this, a wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage perhaps than any other in the New Testament, or the Testament. So that I do not know for a certainty just what Peter means. I cannot understand and I cannot explain it. And there has been no one who has explained it. I guess we can all just go home. Well, Martin Luther, he, he got a little bit out over his skis at times with the things that he would say. Maybe a little overstated. But without question, he is right. There's very hard and perplexing things here in this text that we're probably, there's some knots here in terms of certainty, absolute certainty, that we're not going to untie this morning. And that's okay. That's okay. There's things, that, oftentimes things of the Lord, we're not going to understand with absolute certainty. And there's probably a sense in which the original context um, knew what was going on here a little more than we are going to today based on some cultural things that I won't get into today. But here's the good news. The main point is clearly in view. The main point is clearly in view. And so what I want to do today is this. I want to I simply set the context, which we always want to do. Uh, I want to just tell you the main idea. We're going to come back to that over and over again. So you're going to walk out of here with something to hang your hat on. Okay, the main idea. It's very clear and simple. We're going to walk through the text. I'm just going to explain it. I'll make a closing application. We'll be done. Okay, so that's kind of the roadmap for today. But because this text is maybe uniquely challenging, I'm just going to have to spend some time this morning just kind of straight teaching, straight explaining, maybe more than I would do uh, normally. And so, man, let's, let's just kind of lean in, um, listen in. Uh, if, you, if you find your mind wandering off, you'll probably get lost. So let's, let's stay engaged. Don't let your eyes glaze over, all right? And uh, let's really seek to understand what's going on here. One other thing. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, um, or maybe someone who's not necessarily a straight unbeliever, uh, but maybe someone who's just kind of wavering on this Jesus stuff, like, eh, it's compelling, but I'm not quite sure. This text might seem more far-fetched to you than some others, like some type of fairy tale or some movie or something. Because it talks a lot about the supernatural. The Bible talks a lot about the supernatural, but there's other things that don't seem quite so supernatural at, on the surface, like turn the other cheek. Well, we can get down with that. That's not that far-fetched necessarily. Or, you know, be nice and, and be generous to the poor. Well, that's, I, I, can, I can get that. Like a lot of ethical things don't seem that far-fetched, but when you talk about what we're going to talk about today, it's like, whoa, slow down. But the Bible talks a lot about the supernatural. And if the supernatural is really real, and Christians believe that it is unapologetically, and we have for 2,000 years, first and foremost because of the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, if the supernatural is really real, then this text isn't that far-fetched. So if you're open to it, and if you're open to the fact that maybe I don't have it all figured out, if I truly am open-minded, 
Maybe suspend for just a moment this, this belief that natural, tangible, physical, scientifically proven things are all there is in the world. Maybe just suspend that for a moment and, and just see what God does to your heart. Let's just see what happens, okay? So, again, we're in 1 First Pat- First Peter chapter 3, and I want to back up and just reference verse 17, because that's the context. He's flowing from verse 17 into what we're going to talk about today, all right? So let's keep that in mind. This, this, this text is not in isolation. It's coming on the heels of verse 17, which we talked about last week. If you missed it last week, check out the, the podcast. So verse 17 says this, chapter 3, 1 Peter. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So Peter's saying to the original audience back then, us today, that sometimes we're going to suffer, see it there in verse 17, even for doing good. And that's better than suffering for doing evil. That's pretty clear, easy to understand, right? But he's saying here that if you suffer for doing good, oftentimes this shows that you're on the right path. Well, how could that be? Because if I'm suffering for doing good, that doesn't feel very good. And in the moment, it doesn't feel like the right path at all. But Peter's saying, remember, it is. Why? And when he, when he talks about suffering for doing good, he means being faithful to your Christian witness in a culture that doesn't like that necessarily. So if you suffer for doing good, this, this might mean that you're on the right path. Why? Because, check it out, Jesus had the exact same experience. So you're in good company. Jesus had the exact same experience. You're in good company. Why? He, he did the most good that the world has ever seen, and they killed him for it. So if you're, if you're staying faithful to the call to be a witness among neighbors and nations to the truth of what Jesus has done in space, time, and in history, and you're persecuted or you're suffering for that, Christ knows what that's like too. He has gone before you. And he's with you. And check it out. It all worked out for him in the end. It all worked out for him in the end. He didn't stay in the grave. And that's Peter's point this morning. That's the overarching point. It's this. Jesus, too, knows what it's like to suffer for doing God's will. And he was victorious. So take heart. You'll be victorious, too, as you trust and treasure him. Let me say that again. Jesus, too, knows what it's like to suffer for doing God's will. And he was victorious. So take heart. You too will be victorious as you trust and treasure him. Now, Peter's talking about a context of suffering, a persecution. People don't like this Christian witness. People don't like the Christian faith. And they put pressure on. Pressure sometimes can cause us to feel really um, nervous, anxious, wondering, like, what's this all about that I'm believing again? It can cause us to doubt. Now, in terms of suffering for our faith, in a room this large, there's probably going to be a a diversity of experiences, right? Few of us are facing martyrdom or probably even know someone who has faced martyrdom. We would say martyrdom might be the height, like laying down your life for Jesus might be the height of Christian persecution. And a few of us can relate to that. Our ancient audience could probably relate to that. 
But here's the thing to keep in mind. That still happens in our world today. It still does. Some of you know Maged and Jackie. They're somewhat new to our church, but they're Egyptian. And on Slack, which is our online communication network for people here at the Vine, um, if you're not on Slack, get on Slack, just so we can stay together as a community. Um, Maged put on our Slack communication network just the dire situation of Christians in northern Egypt right now, today. And if you read that article, um, and if you haven't, I'd encourage you to, you'll see that in the past four years, since 2013, 30 different Christians alone in this little part of northern Egypt have laid down their lives for being Christians. That's, that's today. That's, that's, that's right now. That's our time and space. Now, many of us in the room, you know, we have a hard time relating to this because it's quite rare in our culture. I don't want you to go home feeling guilty because you haven't suffered in that way. That's, there's no guilt. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But we should be thankful. Thankful and prayerful. Thankful and prayerful. Thankful because, hey, we, we stand here today or sit here today with relative ease comparatively, Right? Not perfect ease, but relative ease. So we should be thankful for that. That's a good thing. Okay? Just be thankful. Thankful we have the freedoms we do, but also prayerful. And here's the prayer that we want to pray. That if this type of persecution would come our way in the future, and it might, there's no promise that it won't, that Jesus would be so glorious, that the promises of this text that we're going to unpack today would be so true in our minds, and Jesus would rule and reign in our minds and be so beautiful and so glorious and so easy to trust because he's God and we've seen him come through for us over and over again in our lives, that we could even stare down a bullet and say, Jesus is worth it. Jesus is worth it. Let's pray that way. Lord, make me that kind of person. No one knows how you'd actually respond in that situation. Peter's writing to encourage people that might face that kind of situation. But let's just pray that we would be these kind of people. And this text today is going to help us. All right? So whether you're suffering for your faith big ways or small ways, God's got a word for all of us. Whether you're in the heat of it now or taking notes for, for the future, Peter's got a word for them. He's got a word for us. And here's, here's what it is. It's a word of hope. It's a word of hope. Rock solid, iron in your spine kind of hope. An unwavering hope. And here's what it is. Jesus, too, knows what it's like to suffer for doing God's will. And he was victorious. So take heart. You will be victorious, too, as you trust and treasure him. Let's take a look. Verse 18. Let's go back to 17 and you'll see the connection. Verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. Sometimes it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Well, why? Well, here's why. Because or for Christ also suffered. So look to Jesus. Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in 
the Spirit. Let's stop right there. So what is this? He's like, it's better to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. Why? Because it's like Jesus. For Christ also suffered. See that? And he just launches into a short summary of the gospel, right? What's the gospel say? Christ suffered for us because we were unrighteous. We couldn't save ourselves. We were knee deep, neck deep in sin. But Jesus was perfectly righteous, and he never sinned. And so here's the deal. This righteous, unrighteousness thing is really, really important for you to understand the gospel. Only a perfectly righteous substitute could pay for the sins of those who are grossly imperfect, grossly unrighteous. You couldn't just have anybody lay down their life and pay for sin. It had to be someone who was what? Perfectly righteous. Never sinned. Why? Well, it's kind of like this. It'd be like trying to pay off someone's debt without having any money. That doesn't make any sense, right? I'm going to pay off your debt. Oh, how? Well, I don't know because I don't have any money. Well, how are you going to pay off my debt? You can't pay for someone's debt without actually having money. You can't give someone the gift of being raised out of poverty without actually having something to give them. And here's the analogy. Jesus is the only one that has ultimate true wealth. No one else has true wealth. Biblically speaking, any sin at all shows that you're completely spiritually bankrupt. All right? Spiritually poor, but spiritually unrighteous. But God brings us because Jesus can bring us to God, like it says here, because he doesn't have any money problems. All right? He's perfectly righteous. His righteousness is like him having a bank account of a billion, billion dollars. And he's got a a checkbook, and he's willing to write that check for all who are willing to come. All who are willing to come and say, I recognize I'm spiritually bankrupt, and I, I got no checks. I got nothing in my account. I need you to come and write me this check. Are you willing And Jesus says, yeah, if you're willing to come, I'm willing to write that check. Because he's the only billionaire the world's ever seen. Perfectly righteous, like it says in the text. Never sinned. Had Jesus sinned, he'd be dirt poor like the rest of us. But he never sinned. And so he can write the check. He was perfect. He can uniquely pay our debts. And he pays our debt, so now we can face the ultimate judge of debts, the ultimate banker, if you'll endure the metaphor. He might, so he can, what does it say? Bring us to God. And so Jesus took our debt of unrighteousness and paid the penalty of our unrighteousness so serious that it, does, it wasn't just like bankruptcy like we have in our day and age, where bankruptcy, yeah, you got some consequences, but it's not the death penalty. The consequence of spiritual bankruptcy in the context of of history here, in the context of the gospel, is death. And Jesus said, it's not just like I'm willing to write a simple check and hand it to you. No, this check is the check of my own body given for you for the forgiveness of sins. And he was willing to pay because of his great love for all who are willing to come and say, I need it, I need it, Lord. I need it. So that's just Peter describing the gospel here, but he doesn't finish right there. He says, but check it out. This death couldn't hold him down. 
and he was vindicated and proved to be worthy to be trusted and treasured. Why? Because he was what? Made alive. Made alive. Risen from the dead. And so if you got a guy who laid down his life and says, I'll pay your debts, and you'll know it's true when I'm risen from the dead, he says that, and then he acts on it, you can believe that guy. If he says it and he doesn't do it, forget him. But that's not our Jesus. He said it, and he did it. So he's worthy to be trusted and treasured because of this resurrection being made alive. So this is just the gospel. Peter's reminding his first audience and us of this good news that we never grow beyond. This is, this is, this is the waters we swim in, okay? We never move on from this news. Peter knows that. That's why he's saying it. That's why we're saying it this morning. We never grow old of the gospel. That news should radically just climb inside your brain and alter every single aspect of the way you live, if that's true, if you really get it. We've got to be reminded because we're forgetful. But why would Peter say that right here? Is he just saying that, like writing along and all of a sudden, oh, I think I got the gospel on the brain, so I'll just write a little something about the gospel. No, this has a context. There's a reason he's laying this all out. And that's how we learn to understand it to our, for our own lives too. What did we just see last week? If you missed it, check out the MP3. It'll help you understand this week. But last week, Peter just got done, verses 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17, helping his audience see that revenge and suffering, injustice, I'm sorry, revenge in light of the suffering of injustice that you experience, revenge is never a good deal. Revenge is never the option for Christians. Because we've got to treat people with gentleness and respect, and that shows that we're different. And when we, we show that we're different, we're going to have something to say, and some people, based on what we say, are going to come to believe. But not pursuing revenge, that's hard. But Peter's saying, remember, Jesus knows this. Jesus knows this. He knows how hard that is. He's our leader. He's gone before us. We follow him. He goes before us and take heart. He knows what it's like to suffer injustice. But at the heart of the gospel is being made alive, and that's the victory. Jesus risen from the dead. It didn't come right away, but it comes in time. So we've got to be patient. There's always a, a resurrection after the death for the Christian. Take heart. Take heart, church, in Asia, in Asia Minor. Take heart, church, in ancient, what is modern-day Turkey. The resurrection is coming. You're feeling pressure. You're feeling persecution. You're thinking, maybe I could lay down my life, or maybe I'm just going to lose some possessions. Maybe my friends and family are going to ditch me. Take heart. There's a resurrection coming. There's a resurrection coming. It came for Jesus. It's going to come for you, too. So that's why he lays out the gospel, Right? It's a, it's, it's, a, it's a huge encouragement in light of the context. Some of you, wherever you're at in this room, you need to hear this again, just like his audience did. What you're enduring now is hard. No one is going to diminish the fact that it's hard. But as you cling to Jesus, you always will emerge out of suffering. It may not even be till the next life, but this life, the Bible says, is a mist and then eternity. And it will all one day be made right. It will all one day, because of Jesus, if you are united to him by faith, it will all be vindicated.
That's what he's getting at. Look at verse 18. Let's keep reading. For Christ also suffered once for sins. He also suffered, just like you guys are suffering, right? The righteous for the unrighteous. Amazing grace. Amazing mercy. Why? That he might bring us to God. So God wanted us to draw near. And here's what happened. He was put to death in the flesh, crucifixion, but made alive in the spirit, resurrection. Okay, now, verse 19. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. All right, you got that? You tracking with that? You good? It's like, like Peter, man, rabbit trail. Like, what? let's bring this thing back. Land the plane, buddy. Um, but it, it, just on the surface, it seems a little odd. But we're going to see in a second what this is all about. Okay, let's look at it again. Verse 18, the second half of it, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Okay, so he was died, resurrected, and then something happened. He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. Now, there's a lot of debate about what this means. We can't maybe exhaustively know for sure, okay? Uh, like Martin Luther said, this is a little odd, a little confusing, but we're gonna uh, dive in here, and, and I'm gonna give it my best guess. So in what sense did Jesus proclaim to spirits in prison? Like, who are these spirits? What prison? Here's what I think it means. So look at the end of 18. The context is he just got done talking about crucifixion and then resurrection. So after Jesus was resurrected, Peter just got done talking about it, Jesus went and declared to evil spirits that opposed him that he was victorious. Because that's what this whole section is about. The victory of Jesus, we'll see that at the end, and the victory of Jesus that we join in, Jesus went and declared this true victory to powers of darkness that opposed him. Now, again, there's much here we don't understand. But it says that these spirits, and keep in mind that small s, not capital S, and plural, spirits, often all, almost always in the Bible, refers to dark spirits, evil spirits, opposition to God type spirits. Now these evil spirits, it says, were in prison in some sense. In the prison of God's judgment. Now we don't totally know where this is or what it means or how it works, but in Peter's second letter, just a few verses away from this, if you keep turning your, the page of your Bible, Peter gives us a window, and it says this in 2 Peter chapter 2. God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. Now jump back to our text. Being put de to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. So there's a judgment that Peter's talking about here on those that oppose God in the spiritual realm, okay? And then he brings in this Noah piece. Okay, so what's that got to do with it, okay? Well, it seems that in the days of Noah, if you remember back to Genesis chapter 6, 
the creation was at its height of wickedness. And there was spiritual things going on. It sounds like there was spiritual influence on these people that was somewhat unique at the time. And these spirits had a ton of influence on the affairs of humans. But what does the text say? It says God was patient. See there, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. But there's a time when his patience kind of ran out. So much so that he brought judgment on these evil spirits like we saw in 2 Peter. And, 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 these, and he brought judgment through the water on humanity as well. We're going to get to that in a second. But it sounds like these spirits that were wreaking havoc on humanity during the time of Noah have been put in the prison of God's judgment for a long time. And after his resurrection, Jesus came and reminded them that the victory is clearly seen. The, the victory is clearly finished in the resurrection. It's a done deal. And so Peter's saying now, like, kind of like, since we're on the topic of Noah, listen to this. He went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. So post-resurrection, kind of like spirits, I'm the man. Like, I'm the guy. It's proven in the resurrection. Your day is coming where it's going to be totally done, but it's already kind of done right now. Okay? Because you're in prison and I'm the victor. Because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus. Okay, so track with this. So like those spirits were judged in Noah's day, for their rebellion against God. All other sinners were judged as well. Through human, human sinners were judged through this flood, right? The height of historic wickedness, maybe. But not everyone. There was a few that were saved. There was a few who what? They passed through the waters of judgment. Water was the means of judgment, right? Flood wiped everyone out except for eight Noah and his family were saved from judgment. And so what was the instrument of this judgment? It was water, like I just said. And now for us today, Peter's saying, God gives the symbol of baptism that corresponds to this, right? Baptism is a reenactment of this picture of salvation, right? Because how does this work? If you go down under the water and you stay down, what happens? You die, that's right. And thanks be to God, you guys have nice pastors. And we don't leave you down there. We pull you out, right? Why? Because it's a powerful symbol. Going down under doesn't kill you. You pass through the waters of judgment, symbolizing the resurrection of Jesus that's credited to you and promised to you as you rise out of the water to walk in newness of life by the empowering of the Spirit as you follow Jesus. And that's all that Peter is getting at here. That God judged evil spirits in the past and humans in the past through this massive crush of water. But what happened? Noah trusted God's word. He trusted God's word by faith. He believed God by faith. God said, go build this boat. 
And Noah's like, uh, okay, I, I guess I'll do it. Like, I, I don't know what's going on here, but I'm going to do it. Because you said so, I'm going to trust your word. And what happened? He was saved. He wasn't saved by works. He wasn't saved after the boat was finished. He was saved by faith. Right? It was the faith that saved him because he built the boat. He believed God. And by faith in God's word, he passed through the waters of judgment. And Peter is just saying this. If you're a Christian, that's your experience too. Those who believe in Jesus' resurrection from the dead are going to pass through the judgment and have life. Pass through the waters of judgment and have life. That's what he's getting at here. But this is the tricky phrase that we got to figure out. 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, like I just got done talking about. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. Okay. Uh, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So does the act of baptism save us? No, the, the Bible clearly teaches that it does not. So what does this mean? The language here is a little tricky. He's using phrases that we might not totally understand because it sounds a little different in English. This was originally written in Greek. But here's what we can see that points to the fact that baptism does not save you. That's not what he's talking about. It says, it's, it's when Peter says this, not as a removal of dirt from the body. Okay, baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. But, but keep in mind, guys, not as a removal of dirt from the body. Like having uh, dirt on your body and having water just kind of wash over it and remove that dirt Having water physically pass over your skin doesn't magically make a person saved. It's not like some mechanistic thing like that. The physical act itself doesn't have power. But here's the power. What does it say? The appeal. But as an appeal to God. The appeal. It's all about the appeal. Uh, Calling out to God. For a good conscience, meaning, Lord, I know I'm a sinner, and that's a problem, and I want that to be solved. Calling out to God to save you because you believe the resurrection. That's what saves you. Casting yourself upon Jesus. Calling out to Jesus and saying, like a blind beggar, I need you, Jesus. Will you save me? And he says, yes, I'm willing to save all that are willing to come. So so track with this now. Noah believed God cast himself about, uh, upon God's word by faith and it saved him by God allowing him to pass through the waters of judgment. Those who believe God are saved as well and pass through the waters of judgment and this is symbolized in baptism. So judgment's not the final word for those who believe and trust in the victory of Jesus that he displayed in his resurrection. That's the point here. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the whole foundation for all of what Peter's saying. Since the resurrection is true, you can trust it. You can trust it. The evil spirits are judged and they're triumphed over. Jesus had something to say to them. We don't know exactly what it was, but it was a message of victory. I'm risen from the dead. I'm the guy. You can trust me. He says to all who are willing to come. Those who persist in unrepentant wickedness are triumphed over in God's judgment. But those who trust 
and treasure what God has done in Jesus in space, time, and history. Ultimately, because of his resurrection, we'll be saved. So all that to say, take heart if you're suffering. Take heart if you're suffering. Take heart if there's heat from persecution. Why? Because Jesus too knows what it's like, and he was victorious. Jesus too knows what it's like to have people say, you're building a boat? That's insane. Why would you do that? Why would you listen to God? God doesn't talk. Why would, you, why would you listen to him? People that come to you and say, you believe in Jesus and you're willing to like talk about that to other people? Don't you know that this culture isn't going to stand for that? Jesus knows what, that, what that's like. Jesus knows what it's like to be rejected and alone. And he was victorious. So take heart. You'll be victorious too as you trust and treasure him. And he just caps it all off with this last sentence in verse 22. Just this final kind of blast of encouragement for the church, for them then, for us now. Check it out, verse 22. Jesus, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. What's that all mean? It means Jesus reigns. Jesus is the victor. Jesus is king. He reigns in heaven right now. When you're seated at the right hand, that means you're in the position of ultimate authority, the highest authority. And what does it say? It says all powers, physical or spiritual, whatever, all of them, angels, demons, authorities, powers, they're all in subject to King Jesus. He's all powerful. What did he say in the Great Commission? We hear it a lot, and so we grow numb to it. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's a lot of authority. He didn't say kind of some authority or just a little bit of authority or 90% of authority. No, he said all authority. So what? So you can go and you can make disciples no matter what, no matter even if they persecute you. It's okay. Jesus was victorious in the resurrection. You're going to be too. It may take a lifetime, but life is short. Heaven is for eternity. So dive in without fear. Again, like I said last week, Romans 8.31 is true. If God is for you, and he clearly is if you're in Christ, if you know him, if you love him, if God is for you, who can be against you? It's a great question. There's people that are against you right now. Some of you are thinking them right now. But, but if God is for you, who can be against you? Is his hand shortened that it cannot save? Does he have no power to deliver? He's our, our shepherd. He leads and feeds and guides us. So if God is our shepherd, why are we so fearful? If he's the good shepherd, he's not a bad shepherd, he's a good shepherd. Why would we, why would we be fearful? Whom shall I fear? Is anything too hard for the Lord? It's great rhetorical questions. So here's the whole point for the first audience in us. Press on. Don't give up. Don't give up. The day of vindication is coming. It may seem slow. It's not. It's coming. You might suffer for being on mission as a Christian. You might suffer a lot. You might suffer a little. But either way, it's going to be okay one day because Jesus is risen from the dead.
Now, some of us, when we hear this message, it, it kind of lands on us a little odd. Or just, we don't really relate to it because honestly, we've never probably, in some sense, suffered at all for our faith. And if that's the case, let's just ask the question, why is that? It may be just God providentially, you know, you've been as faithful as possible and you just haven't suffered. And that's up to the Lord. That's not up to you as long as you're being faithful. But some of us, maybe it's because we just lack boldness. And, and, and we're just overcome with fear of if I open my mouth and declare what I know is true, there may be some repercussions for that. But God in his word is saying, it's okay. I'll take care of the repercussions. You can step out in faith. And, and you can just repent. I need to do this. We all need to do this. You can just repent of our lack of faith and how we've been triumphed over by, by fear. And God will forgive that. I mean, Peter, my word. Do you know the apostle Peter? I mean, he, he walked three years with Jesus. And he was, he was afraid. He was afraid. And he repented and forgiven. And God sent him on mission you can repent of your, of, your, of your lack of faith because you're scared to suffer. I need to do that too. I'm not a super Christian. I'm not super evangelist. But knowing that if you just simply then pray, Lord, would you just give me opportunities to be faithful? And, and I just want opportunity to be faithful. And if that comes, Lord, I just pray you give me the power to be faithful and you can deal with the results and I'll trust you for the results. That's all. That's all. Remember, press on. Our labor's not in vain. You might look like a fool today, and that's okay, because dying a death on a Roman cross was the height of foolishness for Jesus. But what happened? He was vindicated. So don't give up. Press on. God is worthy to be trusted. You'll be vindicated too one day. The Word is worthy to be trusted. So we do this together we do this together. If we're actually on mission, we're going to have to do this together. Church can't just be some event that we show up to, ah, sleep in or not, whatever. No, church is a place where, man, I got to have you around me because I'm dealing with some stuff, right? I'm faithfully on mission and, and my neighbor, like, ostracizing me now. Will you help me? Would you pray for me? I don't know what to say and it's awkward or or my boss, he just thinks I'm nuts and he doesn't talk to me or my coworkers or, or whatever it may be. Small or little, man, we got to do this together. That's church. Church is not an event. It's our identity. We need one another. And church gets really beautiful as we get on mission together and support one another, pray for one another. It's going to look like a first century church that even the Roman Empire couldn't slow down. You with me? Jesus, too, knows what it's like to suffer for doing God's will. And he was victorious, so take heart. You'll be victorious too as you trust and treasure him. Let's pray. Lord, may the truth of this word come alive in our lives by the power of your spirit. And only with your help is that possible. We know this, we confess this. In Jesus' name, amen.